I'm so happy to be here. Honored to be among my people. I love writers. Writers know things that other people don't know, right? Um, writers know sort of implicitly in our bones that that a good what a good story can do, the effect that a good story can have, like um, that a good story can help us understand what it feels like to be someone else, and that a good story reaffirms something that I desperately need to be reminded of daily, which is that every one of us on this earth are more alike than we are different. I get that from stories, so I'm going to endeavor to tell you um, some entertaining stories today. So hi, fellow writers. I'm Starshine Rochelle, and I'm here to encourage you to expose yourself. Grace asked me to come and talk about writing with courage. And I think it's because over 15 years or so of column writing, um, I've come to develop a reputation for saying, or rather typing, um, things that other people are you know, too polite or too shy or too timid or often too wise um, to say in public, in the, in the public record, to say out loud or in print. Um, if you haven't seen my column, um, Ernie gave you a taste of it, but I, I write... I write frankly, um, usually with humor, um, often controversially about life, love, culture, politics, parenting. Um, and in tone, I aim for sort of an audacious, um, no mincing words, keeping it realness. That's the style I like to read. Um, I often take on issues I'm rabidly passionate about, like gay rights and um, the nightmare that is our president and the spirit-sucking slog that parenthood can be. Um, I've, written, I've written columns about not having the energy or time to floss my teeth and why I don't ever again want to have sex in a car and confessing that I often root for my kids to fail. Um, one time I, I read about this, this rising trend again in women who are saving themselves for marriage, and I wrote a column called No One Cares About Your Hymen. <laughs> the column wasn't as good as the headline, but I love the headline. So, so the things that I write make me sound, or I guess you could say reveal me to be lazy or entitled or even kind of mean sometimes. Um, one, time I, one time I wrote a column wishing that gay conversion therapy could work the other way around and turn heterosexuals homosexual. I actually contacted one of the places that offers this service, and I asked them, hey, can you help me? Um, Flip-flop from garden variety man bait to rip-roaring lady lover. And he said they don't recommend that. So... (laughs) But I have fun. But I didn't, I didn't always write like this. I wasn't always comfortable sort of putting myself out there like that um, and, you know, straining the boundaries of polite conversation. So I know firsthand that exposing, exposing yourself on the page can be really scary. Um, I, before, before I was the gal who will tell ta- tens of thousands of readers about my mortifying mammogram in which the woman, the technician doing the mammogram, recognized me from the independent and then asked me if I was wearing deodorant. Um, Before I I was that gal, um, I was the gal sitting at the keyboard going like, don't don't say that. You cannot send that to the editors who pay you. You know, under no circumstances should you consider typing that and publishing that and hitting send. Um, It was scary for me because, like everybody, I didn't want to hurt people's feelings, 
which is a reasonable thing. I didn't want... I, I wanted people to like my work, right? Not hate me and call me names. I'm a fairly confident person, but nobody wants to be reviled. Um, and it was scary for me to write like that because I was a journalist. I was a reporter, and I was actually trained and even professionally obligated to be objective in my writing, right? I was supposed to keep myself out of the story. I was supposed to avoid sensationalism. And so, you know, slapping my byline on something that was opinionated and um, self-involved and sort of purposely provocative felt very, very awkward. Um, it felt like I was cheating. It felt rule-breaky and, and bad. It felt like I was being bad. And, um, but I got over it. So I'm going to tell you how, how I got over my fear of expressing extreme and occasionally unpopular opinions. And I'm going to tell you how, when I sit down to write, I make sure I've got my thesaurus and my strunk and white and my audacity right there beside me. You know, like I've got my Wavo sitting right there on the desk next to my laptop. And I'm going to tell you how it's been incredibly freeing and rewarding and, um, and occasionally, I won't lie, a little challenging, but in a really delicious way, like in a make-you-a-better-person kind of way. And I'm going to encourage you to, to do the same, to experiment with kind of summoning up your long-shrouded chutzpah and slapping it on the page for all the world to gasp at as well. So I discovered that for me, there are really six good reasons to write with courage. So I'm going to take you through those reasons. The first reason is, it's funny. It turns out that um, when I was working in a newsroom, I, I, I learned that I'm a lousy reporter. I worked, at least for hard news, I worked at the Santa Barbara News Press for tw uh, 11 years. And we had a police scanner in the newsroom. You know what that is? So um, for those who don't know, that's like a, like a CB radio kind of thing, that you can hear the calls that 911 operators make when they call dispatchers, when they call the police, when they call the ambulance, when they call the fire, and tell them where they need to be. And, and it's pretty traditional for newsrooms to have that so that they know where they need to go to report the news that's going on. And so... When I was in the newsroom, if I was the only one there when the police scanner went off, like, like uh, shots fired, lower State Street, bank robbery in progress, I would literally grab my purse and run to the ladies' room. <laughs> I'm not even making that up. Like, I would, like, get out of there as fast as I could. I, I did not. I hated being sent out to cover police calls um, because it was chaotic <laughs> and I never knew who was the right person I should be talking to, and I didn't understand the laws well enough to know, like, what information could I demand and what really had I no claim to. And plus, those stories went on really long, and you'd be there late at night, and I had kids, and they needed baths and dinner, and it was like, what, let, let the old wags handle this. They love this shit. Like, they love to stay and do that stuff. I don't love it. Um, okay, but I'm a good storyteller. So we discovered, like, okay, don't send Starshine out on that, but... Let's use her for storytelling. Um, so when they would have other people do the reporting on things, and I mean complicated things like, like intricate Ponzi schemes or, um, or how a wildfire scientifically whipped through this particular neighborhood in this particular weather, when other people would report on it and give me the facts and I would write it, we would win awards because I could make a really good story out of it. I just wasn't good at going and like, digging around and getting those facts. It was boring for me. 
Um, and so I have a California Newspaper Publishers Association Award in business and financial reporting, <laughs> which, if you ask my husband who's sitting here, is hilarious because <laughs> I don't even do my own taxes. But I can tell the shit out of a story, and that's because I grew up um, in Hollywood in a family of storytellers. In my family, we had theater people and salesmen and songwriters. And, you know, in the era before iPads, if you recall it, we would sit around the table or the dining, you know, or the living room, and we would, we would tell family stories. And we would kind of have a contest to see who could tell those old stories best and, and you know, who knew where the laughs were and, and who could build up to those laughs with just the right timing and anticipation. And I learned through my family that laughs were a commodity, and that, that earning them is a skill to be proud of. And so when my editors finally put my good storytelling to use by giving me a Sunday column, I had to come up with things to write about. And my default mode was make people laugh, be funny. I knew how to do that, and I knew it was valuable, and people liked it. You know, the trick to it is all you have to do is humiliate yourself in print. And for the purposes of today's talk, we'll call that courage. Um, <laughs> So we've established I would do pretty much anything for a laugh, and where I came from, the chuckle justified the means. So I started confessing embarrassing things that I knew would make people snort with laughter as they read their paper with their morning coffee, and I knew it was stuff that people weren't talking about anywhere else, and therefore they were likely to clip it out and send it to their sister or email the link to their wife or you know, leave it on the counter for their daughter or whatever. Um, in the newspaper business, we have a thing called the talk a talker. And that's a story that maybe isn't the most important story of the day, like it's not a need to know, but it's the one that actually people are going to be talking about at dinner parties or the water cooler at work or whatever. And um, I was always aiming to have that talker, the one that people were like, hey, did you see Starshine's column yesterday? Snicker, snicker. Um, I remember one particular column I wrote called Men Who Need Showers and the Women Who Love Them. <laughs> wow. Confessing to an attraction for unclean cinematic men. So I'll read you a little piece of that. So I'm on the phone this week with Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson, quite likely the current biggest name in Hollywood and the modern master of this year's Santa Barbara Film Festival. The interview's going great. I'm pinching myself, and he's confessing his fears, his mantras, and other secrets of his matchless craft. Then damned if that Kiwi genius doesn't bring up Aragorn, heir to the throne of Gondor, in J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy trilogy, portrayed in the films with quiet intensity by, by holy mother of hunk Viggo Mortensen. My train of thought derails violently with countless passengers injured. The hours of research I've done and the list of questions I've carefully crafted to sound smarter than I am give way to unprofessional, impure, and quite possibly unsound thoughts. Suddenly I'm sweeping the stringy, tangled strands of hair out of Aragorn's Middle-earth-soiled face, wringing a wet cloth over his nasty, orc-inflicted battle wounds, and then, if there's time... Swiping a nice, fruity-flavored lip balm over his ragged kisser to counteract prolonged exposure to the merciless fires of Mount Doom. <laughs> oh dear, it looks even more deranged when you see it in print. <laughs> and it may well be, but a recent poll among my trusted chicks of the round table, my fellowship of the thang, if you will, reveals a surprising number of women share this particular dementia, an unwholesome fervor for filthy men. There's Humphrey Bogart in African Queen, Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now, Harrison Ford in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Take your pick. 
They all need baths, and we'd all be happy to wield the washcloth. (laughs) So that's one where I just went, yeah, I'm doing that. That made me laugh while I was thinking of it. It made me laugh while I was writing it. And I knew it was funny and unusual, and it would be a talker and a giggler. And it was. And for me, the joy of entertaining strangers really outweighed the judgment I knew was being assessed on me by people who found it neither funny nor relatable. (laughs) Plus, we all like the person who's willing to laugh at themselves, right? When you're walking on the street and you see someone trip, we all prefer the person who will look back and laugh and be like, boy, was that stupid. Besides, you know, rather than the person who, like, pretends it didn't happen or they meant it and did it on purpose, nobody likes that person. So... I feel like when we can laugh at ourselves, we're truly alive, right? We, we know ourselves. Like, um, we, we know our weaknesses, and we're the first to admit it, and, and then no one sort of has anything on us, right? If we're the first to admit it, it's like, yeah, no, I know. That's weird. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, and I want you to remember that when you're, when you're writing and you're thinking about being afraid to show your own foibles or weirdnesses or chinks in your armor. We, we like those people. Um, which leads me to the second reason to write with courage, which is it, it sparks real human connection. I mean, I'll be honest and say that honesty has its drawbacks. I get called a lot of terrible names by readers sometimes. I've been called ignorant and insulting, revolting, a poor-mannered whiner, an insecure control freak. I've had a death threat. Um, this is a fun quote, one of my favorites. Yours is truly a disgusting column on Memorial Day, but then it is on most days. <laughs> I like that one. Um, Someone called me a child abuser. Just this weekend, a guy called me pure evil in all caps. Um, I get invited to church more often than I'm comfortable with. (laughs) But I would say more often than that, maybe one in four, um, maybe more, people write and say thank you. Thank you Thank you for saying what I too feel and have never heard anyone else give voice to or, or, um, I've never seen anyone talk about in quite that way before. Or, you know, thank God I'm not the only one. I really needed that today. And I love that. I've come to, I've come to value that more than laughter, um, which is saying something in my family. You know, not just gratitude, um, but understanding, like a mutual understanding with strangers and this human connection. I mean, I love that. You guys are writers. You know what I'm talking about. When you get one person who says, that thing you did, it connected with me. It's like, oh, God, thank you, because those moments when you're sitting by yourself and you're like, why am I doing this? That's why we do it, right? Um, And that's why I became a writer. I wanted to connect people with real feelings that we all have and make us feel less alone, right? Like we make make us all feel more understood between one another. Um, That's the kind of writing I like to read. And so, of course, that's the kind of writing I want to put out there. Um, And if I can do that by suppressing my own natural instinct to avoid getting nasty emails from a few cranky and usually Republican strangers, well, hell, I'm going to do that, right? So it has a funny effect, though, of turning me into a confession junkie. So, like, now I tell people things no one wants to know, truly. And I mine my life for columns, and I mine really deep. I've had people tell me that they don't invite me to things because they don't want to end up in my columns. (laughs) And I don't blame them. That's a real thing. Like, that's, yeah, and I can't tell them that that wouldn't happen, you know? Um, 
I also, I regularly heave myself into awkward, even punishing situations simply for the harrowing tale. I know I'll get out of it. Um, I've, I've been escorted from Bacara Resort by security guards in pursuit of a story that I wasn't technically invited to cover. Um, I spent... I've spent the day with a guy who scrapes roadkill off county pavement because I wanted to read that story and nobody was writing it, damn it, so I had to do it. Um, I once forced my family to rent an RV and drive with me on Route 66 to Grand Canyon and back. Nobody wanted to do that, none of us. I didn't even want to do it. It's, it sounded like a week of sewage sloshing, Walmart parking lot sleeping misery, and it was exactly that. My husband asked me, why do we all have to suffer for your art? <laughs> as, as if he didn't know the answer. <laughs> for the story, of course. The RV is the story. The story is the RV. It's a roaring V10 engine. It drives all. I still, I still to this day, try not to think about that trip because it was horrible. We drove into a friend's basketball hoop and knocked it over like within the first 10 minutes. We rattled 1,300 miles with a humongous dead hornet on our larger-than-life windshield. It was like, it was disgusting. We were too grossed out to clean it. And at the very first left turn, I'm not even kidding you, my toothbrush flew into the toilet. (laughs) But the resulting story, the story was great. It was a really good story. Um, One of my most popular stories is called I Did Naked Yoga, because I did. It's the first column in my last book, which is in the bookstore, by the way. Um, And that took some courage, let me tell you. But it was worth it for the story. I won't read it to you, but um, (laughs) I'll save that one. Um, But I do need to warn you that once you get comfortable with putting yourself out there and letting your opinions and secrets sort of just whip around wildly in the wind, there is a danger that develops. And that is reason number three to write with courage, which is... When actual important social and political issues arise between your nude down dog and your squirrel road scraping, you start to feel like, you know, someone needs to say something about this. And heck, you know, you've got an outlet or at least, you know, a a passing familiarity with the English language. And, you know, you ought to raise your voice for the common good. And so you do. And so what happened is, like, years of writing boldly, first for entertainment, as I said, and then for the sake of human connection, which I also said, I came to a place where I became so comfortable with candor that I came to believe that if something is both true and important, that there's neither shame nor harm in telling it like it is. And in fact, there's only cowardice in not doing so. And so I began using my platform to speak out about issues that I care about, that um, other people don't have a platform, and I need to, I need to speak up. And I've, I've done so on you know, equal pay and kneeling for the national anthem and vaccinations and gay marriage and the infant that is our current commander-in-chief. Um, I wrote a, a column not long ago along those lines when I thought the Me Too movement was heading off the rails, um, I, kept, I kept hearing women, maybe this has happened to you too, I kept hearing like all this great stuff was going on, hashtag me too, and like all these like horrible people were, were getting found out and, and exposed. But then at the same time, you'd go to you know, places and women would kind of whisper like, I don't know, this seems like a witch hunt, like some of it I'm not really comfortable with. And I just kept hearing that. 
And I kept feeling it a little bit too. Like, like I like this, but I don't like this part of it. And like certain part, like I'm not super 100% on board. And can we talk about this? Wait, wait, wait. Can we talk about this? And nobody was doing that. And I thought, oh God, I got to do this. I got to, we got to talk about this. We have to talk about this because we can't have an entire segment of women secretly recoiling from this new wave of feminism. That's not going to work. Let's get it out there. Let's talk about it. Um, so I wrote, I wrote a piece. I'm just going to read you not the whole thing, but the first part of it, so you'll see what I'm talking about. Ladies, I got to come clean. From the first time I saw it on a social post, Me Too has rubbed me the wrong way, and I don't mean like in a Me Too way. The first wave of confessions was powerful, a silent but staggering wail that exposed the shocking pervasiveness of sexual assault and oppressive harassment in a nation that regularly applauds itself for equality. For me, though, the hashtag became a maimed meme when women began tossing unsolicited ass and insufferable catcalls into the mix, along with the egregious menacing affronts. Though these, though these may all be evidence of men treating us like property, it feels both insensitive and overly fragile to lump together the rapiest of rape with the old man saying, hey, how about a smile, sweetheart? Then came the naming and shaming, the firing and blacklisting, and the systematic picking apart of each public apology like flesh from a carcass. That's when my hackles went on high alert, and for a couple of good reasons. I distrust, I distrust a mob mentality, even one that starts with good intentions. When a serial predator like Harvey Weinstein is finally exposed after decades of premeditated perviness, it feels like sweet justice. But when the headlines give way to accusations of male celebs using, quote, sexually explicit language and trying desperately, even repugnantly, to get laid, it feels a little like dude hunting season. I'm equally wary of the trial by Twitter trend that's impacting careers while skirting due process. Hanging a proven boob grabber or wiener waver in the public square and beating him with a stick may be satisfying, but it doesn't address the larger systemic problem that made him think that was reasonable behavior. And I'll stop there. But honestly, I was a little afraid um, when, I, when I published this one. I come up here and I'm like, I don't care. I'll say anything. That one made me nervous, right? Because I didn't want to be like anti-sisterhood or something. Um, but that said, I did feel like I needed to push that little piece of the conversation a little bit further um, because so many of my friends were talking about it and women, strong women that I knew. Um, and I just wanted us to keep... I just wanted us to keep talking about it. And, um, you know, by this point, I pretty well hardened myself to any inevitable criticism I get. Um, and I did, hear, I did hear from both sides on that, but, uh, but, but I heard a lot of people say thank you, nailed it. That's, that's how I feel, too. Um, but perhaps the most audacious column I ever wrote and the one that got my column canceled at the Santa Barbara News Press was one I wrote in the midst of the turmoil that Ernie mentioned 12 years ago that erupted between the newsroom staff and the owner-publisher, Wendy McCaw. Um, if you don't know the story, you know, editors were being told to assign stories they felt were unethical. Reporters were being punished for writing stories the publisher didn't like. And lots of my colleagues quit. Some were fired. I stayed for a while to tell the story from the inside. I thought I could get some stuff done that way. Um, and I did for a little while. Um, and I managed to get this column published, but then management made the totally unrelated decision immediately afterwards to stop running my column. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'm going to read it to you because I'm really proud of it. Just a piece of it. There are reporters here. It's called What I Know About Reporters. 
There are reporters here who spend their evenings wandering into dark parks in the hopes of finding gang members to interview. There are photographers who hike through forests on foot to snap pictures of wildfires. They're audacious truth pirates, these people. Once, while waiting in line at Starbucks with a fellow reporter, I dared the barista, I, da I dared him to tell the barista his name was Wolverine, just for fun. But that's dishonest, he said with a straight face. I'd be misrepresenting myself. <laughs> oh, right, I replied. No, I know. I was only um, kidding about that. <laughs> Our newsroom recently lost some impassioned journalists, the kind of folks who dropped into the office on weekends because it was their favorite place to be. Many were mentors to me, and the chance to marvel at their almost peculiar passion for the trade was no small part of why I enjoyed coming to work. Debates over the potential impact of a single printed word could span a heated hour, and when a big news story broke, they'd loosen their ties, roll up their sleeves, and send out for a dozen large pizzas to keep us happy through the long hours that followed. I'm getting choked up. I'm serious. I love this stuff. Not my writing. I mean, I just, the memories of being there. <laughs> I loved it. Um, these folks, who it's worth noting, had the most finely tuned bullshit detectors I've ever encountered, challenged me to ask the tough questions, look at both sides of every issue, and keep my own bias out of my news stories. And last month, when they felt those basic journalistic tenets were being compromised by the paper's management, they left their posts. But far more of us chose to stay. Some observers of the current news press controversy question our integrity for continuing to work there. Others pardon us on the assumption that we can't afford to leave. The truth is that many of the folks who resigned couldn't afford to leave either. If money were a journalist's prime motivator, and would that we were so practical-minded about our jobs, we wouldn't have entered into this low-paying profession in the first place. We would have parlayed our tenacity into public relations, applied our wordsmithing toward ad copywriting, or tossed our altruistic hats into the political ring. We'd be guests at swanky Bacara galas, not observing them from the back of the ballroom and rushing out to write our stories just as the delicious-smelling dinners are served. No, smartly or stupidly, we value our jobs because they're exhilarating. It sounds self-righteous, but there's a considerable high that comes from being dauntlessly honest for a living. It's my addiction to that high that keeps me at this keyboard when many would applaud me for storming out. But it's loyalty, too. I'm loyal to the work itself and to the way it makes me feel when I do it with integrity, when I do it in the spirit of my former editors, when I do it without fear. I'm proud when even Dr. Laura Schlesinger, a woman with whom I agree on almost nothing, calls a, a profile I wrote about her more than fair. Credibility is a reporter's commerce. Without it, we're not journalists. We're typists. So we guard it carefully like a dancer protects her legs, a surgeon her hands. If Schlesinger, if Schlesinger can trust me, you can too. When I tell you the news press staff writers I know would never put job security over journalistic integrity. As long as you continue to see my byline in this paper, foreshadowing, without knowing it. You can assume I haven't personally been put in that position. Until then, I'll keep feeding my Jones to tell it to you straight and to try to amuse you along the way. Quote, if you want to tell people the truth, Oscar Wilde advised, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. <laughs> Thank you. So I resigned shortly after that began, um, and began writing for The Independent, but that column was incredibly cathartic for me, which leads me to reason number four to write with courage, which is you're psychologically demolished and it's cheaper than therapy. 
I tend to write like gut-twisting columns about the anguish of people leaving me. I wrote a column that people liked about my firstborn son going off to college, um, about my stepfather, about helping my stepfather move out of our family home when my parents divorced. And I wrote a column about a delightful boy I know whose life hung maddeningly in the balance for many months. It's worth noting and interesting, I think, that when I'm really angry or terribly sad, I have a lot less anxiety about sharing personal secrets. I don't know if that happens to you as writers. Um, and I don't know why it is. This is kind of gross. I'm sorry for this. But it sort of feels like vomiting in a way. It's, it's just sort of awful while it's coming out, but you just know you're going to feel so much better when it's over. <laughs> um, so we're short on time, so I won't read you this, this column about this boy. But, but um, I find that, that writing columns is extremely cathartic for me. And time and again, I find that when I really lay myself bare, um, not in a funny or a snarky way, but in a really raw, honest, and vulnerable way, readers are kind. They don't, you know, nobody ever says, like, you're an asshole when you just really open up and are honest. Um, and they're grateful. And it tends to be some of our better writing, I think, too, when we write it from the gut rather than from the head. Do you know what I'm talking about? It kind of it reminds me of singing from the diaphragm versus singing from the throat, right? The tone is just richer, and, you know, it resonates more, something about it. Um, on the contrary, I've written columns just because a deadline is looming and I had to turn something in, and they're terrible, like, they're really genuinely bad, and I hope you never see them. Because <laughs> when you have something you really want or even need to say, I, I find the thing at this point practically writes itself, because authenticity is a, a powerful engine. So did anyone happen to see my column in this week's Independent? Oh, say, can you see word? Yeah. Okay, excellent. So, <laughs> so the fifth reason to write with courage is people come to expect it. Um, when you've been leaping fearlessly onto certain topics for more than a decade and, and, and being fairly loud about it, um, you better enjoy what you're doing because there's really no undoing it. It creates like this Pavlovian reaction in regular readers where, you know, if a school board in Georgia proposes a bill eliminating evolution from the science curriculum, you're going to hear about it, people going, write something! Um, and the same thing happened recently when late-night host Samantha Bee used the C-word to describe Ivanka Trump. I heard from friends and fans and even family, like, you're going to columnize this, aren't you? That's become a verb. Um, so I did. And I'll read it. The word couldn't have gotten more buzz if Trump's stubby thumbs had tweeted it from his golden toilet. The once verboten, inarguably vulgar C-word has been on everyone's whispered lips after funny gal political commentator Samantha Bee hurled it at Ivanka Trump. The first daughter earned the ire for tweeting a tender and utterly tone-deaf photo of herself snuggling her son during a week when migrant children were being torn from their parents at U.S. borders per her dad's new zero-tolerance immigrant policy. Predictable reactions followed. Forty-five feigned offense that we've all heard him refer with equal crudeness to the same body part and saw him welcome Ted Nugent to the White House after that courtly gentleman used the same epithet, epithet on Hillary Clinton. B apologized, a couple of companies pulled their ads from B's aptly named Full Frontal Show, and even liberal women who applauded her message mumbled to one another that the jab was uncouth. But as the entire incident erupted at the intersection of my three favorite things, debating over language, insulting a Trump, and alluding to vaginas, <laughs> I rather enjoyed it. 
B called Ivanka a feckless C-word. And I'm a sucker for the delicious pairing of an erudite word with a back alley one. Although, to be fair, I see the princess-in-chief as more of a witless twat, but what's done is done. (laughs) It's different typing it than saying it in a microphone. Sorry. I know a lot of gals who consider the C word on par with the N word because it's used to demean, dismiss, and define women by their anatomy. I get it. But if you regularly call despicable men by their genital equivalents, um, guilty, then I think you're unentitled to play that particular how dare you card. My friends say it shatters the sisterhood for a woman to call another woman a see you next Tuesday. But... (laughs) But I would feel very comfortable flicking that word at, say, Betsy DeVos, Kellyanne Conway, or Sarah Huckabee. I'd also rather listen to a Ted Nugent album than see any of those names shiver, share a paragraph with the word sisterhood ever, ever again. There's a grumbling in the air that we as a society should be ashamed of ourselves for becoming crasser by the week. Surely there's a sort of expletive inflation taking place if a blazered mother of two can spew such an indelicate invective in front of the FCC and everyone. I suppose it's a good sign that we can still be outraged about public name-calling. Perhaps it means we haven't yet hit the tawdry blue bottom. Ultimately, though, I just don't ascribe the same weight to words as some people do. Maybe it's because they're my trade, like a barber's clippers and shears. To me, words are just spiritless tools, utterly neutral until we animate them with the niceness or badness of our intention. And that, to me, is where all this dirty word prattle disappoints. B's offending taunt was spat in anger, but far more offensive is the amount of attention our culture will devote to a quartet of innocuous letters, the same ones that kick off nutcake, for God's sake. While the sticks and stones of our nation's abhorrent policies are actively ripping children from the arms of their mothers and putting them in cages, who cares about our vocabulary when the United Nations is imploring us, a first world nation whose own lady, lady liberty, quote, glows worldwide welcome, to stop violating the basic human rights of asylum seekers. I wonder, if we keep lowering the bar on language and get all of our ugliest words out into the open, could we recalibrate our outrage meters? If we finally became numb to the cacophony of vulgarities being flung with such ease nowadays, would it allow our ears to pick up on and our dialogues to center on more important issues? Feck our mouths. How do we wash out our collective souls with soap? (laughs) Thank you. Which leads me to the last reason to write with courage. It still feels like I'm being bad, but now that I'm pathologically honest, I can admit that sometimes being bad feels really good. (laughs) I do get a big old rush out of saying what other people are afraid to say. But even if you don't yet feel that way, here's why you should try writing something that pushes your own courage boundary anyway. Exciting things happen when we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, right? Um, Nothing worthwhile ever starts out without some anxiety, some self-doubt. If you think about your first job, your first date, your arrival at college, I mean, would you trade those moments for anything? I don't think you would. And you know why? Because you and me were a lot more alike than we are different. So thanks so much for listening, and I'd be happy to take questions.
It also helps if you, if you don't look like a sweet little thing. Um, uh, my question is, is, have you ever been moved to apologize in print? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I wouldn't say apologize, no, because I'm very careful. Like, I, if, it may sound like I'm sort of flippant about stuff, but I, I put a, a lot of thought. I mean, I never just sort of pull something out of my butt, right? Like, I really think about it and try to make it look like it was written easily. But I really do put a lot of thought into crafting an argument and make, and shoring it up and making sure there's no holes in the argument. I mean, I, I teach column writing, so... And that's a really important part of it is making sure that someone can't just dismiss your argument really easily. Um, so I wouldn't say that I've ever apologized in print, but um, there have been times when I, I used to read the reader comments underneath them until the independent turned them off. And I'm kind of disappointed. I wrote a whole column about how disappointed I am that they're gone because that used to be valuable to me in seeing if I missed any important considerations. You know, and as time goes on, I missed fewer and fewer, right? Because you sort of get really good at, I mean, I'm not good at a lot of things, I'll be honest with you, but I've been doing this one very narrow thing for a really long time. <laughs> so I've got, it's like baking a cake. Like, you know, you have your one cake you're really good at. Um, but, and so occasionally I would admit on the comments, like, you know, excellent point, I didn't think about that or something like that. Um, I did, when I used to write for the news press, I did write, one column and I misheard someone once. We were talking about neckties or something and someone said a foreign hand knot. Do you know what that is? A foreign hand knot? And I didn't know what that is and I wrote it as four in hand, four in hand, foreign, like foreign hand, but it's four in hand, right? Or is it the other way around? Anyway, I got it wrong. So they made me write a whole article about how I got this thing wrong because <laughs> they thought it'd be so funny to hear me admit that in a whole column, so... So, uh, Starshine, uh, I want to go back to the beginning of your talk in your writing desk. Yeah. Are your huevos uh, poached, uh, hard-boiled, <laughs> or scrambled? <laughs> I'm going to leave that one there. Yeah, what what happens when it's time for a column and you don't have anything to write about? I have a column due tonight. Does anyone have any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> so it happens often. Um, hi, Adrian. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've gotten so that anything that makes me angry or gets me excited, I, I go immediately into writing about it. Um, but you know, what happens is it's bad. So if you see a column for me that's particularly bad, that's what happened, is I had nothing and I had to just... You know, because you have a deadline. Most most stories in a, in a news situation are inspired by something happening, and then you write the story. Um, but when you have real estate you have to fill, it's a privilege, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not complaining about it. I love having that there when I have something I really want to say. But occasionally when I don't have anything I really want to say, um, it's stressful. Yeah, and I will always take suggestions. My husband's gotten really good at sending me, like, I read this ridiculous news article. You should consider this for your column. Oh, I have a question. I, I know you sometimes write about your family and children, and um, has that ever been a problem? Has anyone, have your children ever been embarrassed and said, please, Mom, or? Yeah, right. So they get to a certain age, it turns out. 
where they don't want you to talk about them in your column anymore. Um, and then they get past that, and then you're allowed again. But there's, like, this age from, like, you know, 12 to, like, 15 where they're like, please don't ever talk about me or post pictures of me on social media. Yeah, and I had to learn that the hard way. And, and respect it. You have to respect that because, um, you know, they're humans too. But then what, then what I did is I just had my old one start writing columns for me, which was great. <laughs> and, and I gave, I paid him, gave him a byline. Do you have any um, insurance on uh, maybe three or four that are pre-written on the shelf that you can just no? <laughs> but for how I've been, how long have I been doing this? And I've been like, I should really do that. I have ideas. I have like, I was looking through for this for this talk. I was looking through some old columns. I'm I'm not kidding. I have probably thirty like half-written columns that I got halfway through and was like, ah, it's terrible, and just started something from scratch. So. You know, there have been weeks that I was so desperate I went back into those half-written columns and was like, I could make something out of this, you know. <laughs> but um, but they're not my favorites. Do you have any regrets about things you chose to write about where you were exposing yourself and then thought, hmm, I don't think I really wanted to expose myself that much? Yeah, every time I hit send on a column like that, I regret it. <laughs> for, but only for, like, ten minutes. And then, um, and then I... So the columns do, like... 10 or 11 days before it actually publishes. So honestly, by the time it publishes, I forget what it is. People will be like, I loved your column this week. And I'm all, it was what? What are we talking about? Because my head's on the next one. You know, I can't even remember what. So, so I feel like, oh, I have like a day of going, oh, my God, I'm, I can't believe I put that out there. And then it goes away, and then I see it in print, and people comment, and then I'm over it. But I've never had lingering regret. Um, do you find that your children are really good storytellers now? Like, they'll call you and yes. talk to you for like an hour no. about one thing. <laughs> I thought we were going somewhere else with that. <laughs> they are capable <laughs> of telling a good story. They do not want to talk to me for an hour. Do you have any uh, parameters to what you can and cannot print? That's really interesting, right? Because I hear I wrote about the C word. I, ca I called the independent and I was like, heads up, I'm doing this. Like, give me some, what do you need? Am I allowed to say twat? Am I allowed to, what do you, and he was like, I think you're good. As long as, what he said was, as long as it's not in the headline and it's not gratuitous. And I thought, what do I write that's not gratuitous? You know? But um, they didn't change a word, so. One last question. Is there anything you wouldn't write about? Yeah. Um, but it would be mostly family stuff. It would be out of respect for um, friends and family, privacy, stuff like that. Um, not, not, not controversy, not public, con n nothing controversial that I wouldn't write about. 